great future. We're talking real money. It's nice to be reminded how simple and straightforward investing can be, even among all of the the noise and the confusion and the garbage that tends to go on in the world. Hi, everybody. I'm Don McDonald. Welcome to Talking Real Money, the daily podcast. I'm going to move my mic a little bit. There we go. I think that's better. Um, I just finished attending day one of a conference that uh, was put on by Dimensional Funds. It used to be a conference that they would do in person, but with COVID, it's, of course, done virtually. And that's kind of nice because going to the con- I, I I've been to like two because it's a pain. You got to fly somewhere. You got to get a hotel. You got to go to the venue. You got to... You know, you got to get lunch. You've got to deal with all these things and the crowds and the noise. It was kind of nice to just do it online sitting here in my studio. And I learned some things. And as a matter of fact, I want to share a couple of those things. Some of the stuff I learned, you don't care about. It's a little too technical. And one of the uh, classes was, wow, lots and lots and lots of numbers. (laughs) But it's it's interesting. The numbers just support the basic simplicity of the process. That's what that's what it all boils down to. Is that real investing is really simple. And that's what we all need to learn. It's really simple. We make it harder than it needs to be. Couple of things. This was a, the, probably the best slide of the day, and it came from my good friend, and I can call him my good friend because we spent a lot of time together, the various events he's been a part of, Apollo Lupescu from Dimensional Funds. And, and these are just little important bits of information for investors. I mean, come on. How many times have you heard people say, well, yeah, but but this time, this time it's different, Right. Well, yeah, this time we have a, a a political situation that is unlike anything we've had before. We've got COVID. We've got crises of all kinds and protests and riots. And, oh, my gosh, it just doesn't get any worse than this. I don't know if I feel comfortable investing. Well, as Apollo said, it's always different. Every day is different. Every circumstance is different. That's part of living is different. But what's interesting is as much as it's been different, most of the time, even in really divisive political times, stock prices have tended over time to consistently move higher. As a matter of fact, he showed that presidential elections have had absolutely no impact on markets. It doesn't matter which party is in the White House 
or which party is in Congress, the results have been almost exactly the same. And something we forget. We all want to make money on our money, right? But we won't make money on our money unless there's risk. And the risk we're talking about is just future uncertainty. And it's near-term future uncertainty, really, if the past is indicative of what the future might resemble, then we're only talking about temporary uncertainty. If there was absolute certainty about what the markets would do tomorrow, then you wouldn't deserve a return, and you wouldn't get it either. Why would you get a return when everything was certain? And this was one of my favorites because I get this question all the time. So, Don, what do you think the market's going to do? What do you think this stock is going to do? Should I buy this? Should I sell this? Should I get in? Should I get out? Many investing questions. <laughs> I'd have to say most. Most investing questions aren't investing questions. They're market timing questions. And nobody can time the market. I don't care how smart you think you are. You can't. Eventually, you will fail. Unless you happen to be one of the luckiest people on the planet. And that is always a possibility. But I hate relying on luck as a plan, as a strategy. And what we expect and what we get are often two different things. Just because you expect a certain return doesn't mean you're going to get it. And I've talked about that in previous podcasts. People who expect a 12% return from the stock market, they're not going to get that going forward. They're not, uh, not likely to get that. They could, but I wouldn't expect it. That's a silly expectation. And then finally, the key to success, the key to investing success are these four things. Logic. <laughs> if it seems illogical, that's probably because it's illogical. Evidence. Is there data to support the conclusion? And is it vetted? Diversification. Diversification bails you out of all kinds of things because you can't pick wrong if you own them all. And finally, a long-term approach. Patience pays. You hang in there long enough with a diversified portfolio that has been selected based on academic research and logic, and you have a pretty good chance of being successful. 855-935-TALK. That is a really important phone number because that brings you and your question to the podcast or the radio show we do that we turn into a podcast. So the Saturday show airs on uh, on Mondays and Tuesdays or Tuesdays and Wednesdays, typically. You can also ask a question at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form. Just TalkingRealMoney.com. Click on contact. You can type it up or... You can do as this gentleman did and record it, and it sounds pretty doggone good. Hey, Don and Tom. Hope you guys are well, and thanks for all you do. I have two questions for you, one an equities question and one a bonds question. The equities question relates to emerging markets, and I was wondering 
what percentage of the international allocation do you recommend having in emerging markets? I currently have 40% of my equities in international, and the fund I hold is the Vanguard Total International Index Fund. This fund currently has 25% in emerging markets, but in the past it's been as low as 20%. So just by holding this fund, I would automatically have about 8 to 10% in emerging markets. My question is whether you recommend adding a bit more and having a tilt towards emerging markets. So maybe adding about 5% and bringing up my emerging markets to 15% or so, or whether this was too much exposure to that. Okay, let's take the questions in two different parts. Emerging markets, I think you have just about the right amount. We usually suggest about 10% just for diversification's sake. We don't generally recommend overweighting emerging markets. We just think you should have them. A lot of people don't. Uh, there isn't academic research about emerging markets outperforming other markets necessarily. I mean, they should, logically. Yeah, and you should have them in your portfolio. Uh, the only place where I might overweight a little bit over and above what Vanguard has in that international portfolio is is maybe international small cap or just get a small cap fund just to overweight small cap a little bit. But uh, in terms of your allocation right now, I think having 8 to 10% in emerging markets of your total portfolio is pretty darned adequate. Now let's get to the next part of your question. The second question I have is about bonds and I've heard you mention that you use short and intermediate term government bonds for your clients. So my question is whether having 50% in the Vanguard total bond index fund that you recommend and the other 50% in the Vanguard intermediate term treasury index fund would be a good bond portfolio and maybe a safer portfolio than just the Vanguard Total Bond Index Fund. The ticker symbol for the Vanguard Intermediate Term Treasury Index Fund is V, S like Sam, I, G like Gary, and X like X-Ray. Would love to get your thoughts on that. And thanks so much, guys, for your help. Again, here's a, a situation where I don't know that it's necessary. Yes, you are absolutely right. Adding the treasury, the intermediate term treasury to your portfolio will reduce inherent risk. Although it doesn't appear that it will reduce volatility much, if at all. And really, volatility is the risk we most worry about. Uh, don't want to see anybody going off and getting into junk bond funds because they have risk profiles that are very similar to stocks. But in this case, with the Vanguard Total Bond Index, you have a pretty decent split between treasuries and corporates already. So what you're doing is just you're further overweighting the government portion of the portfolio. But what you're sacrificing is a pretty substantial chunk of yield to do so. And that yield can help offset some volatility. So any reduction in volatility that you might get from the treasuries is going to be offset by that additional yield, which in this case, I think it's right around nine-tenths of a percent. And in fixed income these days, that's substantial. So no, I don't think you need to make it more complicated than it need be. I think that, and I've always believed this, that we can keep it relatively simple 
and still do pretty darn well. You might eke out a tiny fraction of a percent more returns in some cases or a, a, you know, tiny reduction in standard deviation or just, again, the inherent default risk that isn't particularly high in investment-grade corporate bonds anyway. So thank you so much for the call or the question. It wasn't really a call. It was it was recorded at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form. Now, next is a call to 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. Hey, good morning. Uh, this is a question. It's, it's for my son who's just starting his career. He works uh, at the University of Iowa, and they offer two retirement plans. One is like a traditional 401k, and one is more like a traditional pension plan. And uh, once you make a decision which way you want to go, you're pretty much locked into it. And um, so I was just trying to figure out how to analyze those two options and help him make a good decision on that. Uh, Both of the plans, they do really well on matching funds. Uh, The IPERS is the pension version of the plans. Um, The IPERS... Uh, I think they have a either a five or seven years to vest in it. So uh, my tendency was to kind of say to them, if you're looking for a long-term employment there, possibly that pension plan might be an option. Um, but otherwise, maybe the 401k. But I don't have any numbers to back it up. Thank you. Rarely does a pension make more financial sense than a defined contribution plan like this, which is probably a 403B. Rarely. What sways the choice usually is security, comfort. As you said, if he plans to stay there for the rest of his career, he could retire with a very comfortable paycheck in the, in the form of a pension. However... If he's starting to save young, if he has good investment options in the 403B and a match, and he does it consistently, the 403B gives him flexibility and it gives him the opportunity to potentially have a lot more money by taking a little more risk, having control over his own destiny. I would lean more toward the 403B option, but uh, again, it's a matter of personal taste and comfort. If he wants that security and he thinks this is going to be his forever job, yeah, okay, the pension would be all right. Odds are it's not his forever job, though, and uh, the 403B option gives him the ability to move that over to another employer very easily, to his own IRA, all kinds of things. And uh, I tend to go with the uh, the defined contribution as opposed to the defined benefit. Thanks for your phone call. Now we go back to a question that was uh, sent in on the uh, the website at TalkingRealMoney.com. Hit the contact form. Hi, Tom and Don. I listened with interest on the podcast that was on September 18th regarding the what to do with cash value life insurance from Northwestern Mutual. I had also been a victim of Northwestern Mutual buying a whole life insurance paid to 65, uh, taking a $1 million policy on me and my wife. 
And you suggested to that uh, listener to not 1035 exchange his cash value life insurance policy. Although I did do a 1035 exchange because I don't think you mentioned this. He probably wants to preserve the cost basis. If you were just to cash out the Northwestern Mutual cash value, then that money put in a taxable, the growth will will be taxed. And even on long-term capital gains, that could be 15%. And it sounded like he was underwater almost $40,000, where if he 1035 exchanged to a low-cost variable annuity, that can grow tax-free up to the cost basis. So you can at least have Uncle Sam share your pain of Northwestern Mutual screwing us. Uh, so I did a 1035 exchange to Fidelity. I hope that listener is listening now. It is definitely tax advantage to do so uh, in order to make uh, a little lemonade out of lemons. So Fidelity had a low cost variable annuity with 25 basis points plus 10 basis points for their cheapest uh, total uh, stock market fund. Um, also, another variable annuity that's low cost is Nationwide. Um, they had a one that was very cheap at 20 basis points. I chose Fidelity because I had all my other assets Fidelity. But I, I would suggest that listener in order to preserve that cost basis, and I hope he's listening, uh, to actually have the do a 1035 exchange, um, especially if it's in higher income tax brackets. As you remember, I'm a physician and also live in New Jersey. And if I had just cash, uh, put the cash value of my Northwestern mutual policy, if I had just put it in taxable, uh, I'd be t- paying incredible amounts of, of tax. Even long-term capital gains would be at least 18% because of 15% with uh, long-term capital gains plus the uh, the Medicare tax additional 3%. Well, I appreciate the information and I really appreciate you listening, but it's, and if only it were that simple, but it's not. Um, you see, there's that, yeah, there's a, an advantage, a slight advantage to the 1035 exchange in that you get that old cost basis as your new one. So in other words, you don't have a gain until you reach that number. And I don't remember how upside down he was, but he was he was upside down. But there's another issue and another this is one of the reasons why I don't often even recommend 1035 exchanges. Because you're putting your money into an annuity and you lose something very valuable inside an annuity. And that is capital gains tax rates. Now, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I do know today, if you're in the 25% tax bracket and you take money out of an annuity after it has appreciated, and uh, the hope is that it would eventually appreciate, you're going to pay at the income rate. Annuities are taxed at your income rate. And if you're way up there, 39.6 or something, you're going to get hit at capital gains as little as 15%. And you're missing something because if you have a long-term capital gain on a mutual fund, that is outside of a retirement plan, if you have a long-term gain on a mutual fund outside of a retirement plan, it 
can't, if you don't take it out all at once, then you're going to typically be taxed at around 15%, even if you're in a slightly higher tax bracket. But if you're in a high tax bracket and you take a little bit now and again out of a variable annuity, you're going to get hit for taxes at your income tax rate, not at the 15% rate. You can do planning on a mutual fund to make sure you don't take enough out to exceed that 15% rate. And again, we're talking about current situation. Things can change in the future. I'm not predicting the tax future. I'm dealing with the rules we have today. And that's one of the biggest things I hate about annuities is that while they offer you some tax deferral, they take it away. They take it away plus some at the end when you get taxed as regular income, unless your tax bracket goes way, way, way down. Um, And the other thing about, for example, a Vanguard total stock fund, total market fund, is most of the gains in that because they have very little turnover. They go to increasing the net asset value, which just like a variable annuity is a deferred gain until you take it out. And most people don't take all their money out at once. So I appreciate the information. There are two sides to the coin, but they're not as clear cut as they might seem. I'm still going to stick with get the money out, stop dealing with insurance investment products ever, because I don't think the insurance industry is a good place to invest at all. I don't think people should generally buy annuities to make money. I think the only purpose for an annuity, and it is a very specific one, is to generate a predictable income given a certain situation like retirement. Otherwise, I generally hate annuities because what few benefits they have, they either eat up in fees, not in the case of the ones you talked about, or they take away in higher taxes. Thank you, though. And thank you all for being a part of the podcast. Please tell your friends, call in, leave your audio or your written question at TalkingRealMoney.com. Be a part of it. We're trying to make the whole country a little bit more financial literate. I don't claim to have all the answers, but um, I've been doing it for a while and I'm trying to help. So uh, be a part of it. And if you have a really complex question, we do have people to help you get answers or to get off on the right foot or to build a plan for the future. And because I know it's so scary to contact someone and meet with them because you think you're going to get sold something, you're going to get a high-pressure sales pitch to buy some stupid annuity. Well, one, we don't sell stupid annuities. But two, all of our fiduciary advisors are told, they know, they signed on to not be salespeople, to be helpers. And while we don't make money helping everybody, we do indirectly make money eventually, we've found. Because when you help everybody, you get a good reputation and you get a lot of word of mouth. And it works. So we will help you. If you want an appointment with one of our advisors with no obligation and no sales pitch just to get your questions answered and to get started on the right path, you know, because it can be convoluted. You kind of, you know, sometimes it's nice to have somebody go through all the paperwork, which we can't 
certainly can't do here. Uh, go to TalkingRealMoney.com, or better yet, go to Vestory.com. You can learn a little bit about our firm there. And then scroll down to the bottom of the page and just set up an appointment. We can, we can have that appointment on the phone or online with you anywhere in the country. And we do want to educate everybody. So again, thanks for being a part of it. Tell your friends. We're here every day. In fact, we're trying to do one closer to seven days a week. Take good care of yourselves. I'm Don McDonald. Talking real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future. So past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now?